This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Something by Hilaire Belloc. Chapter 4 Anna Van Tromp. Once there was a man who, having nothing else to do and being fond of that kind of thing, copied with a good deal of care onto a bit of wood the corner of a Dutch picture in one of the public galleries. This man was not a good artist. Indeed, he was nothing but a humpbacked and a very sensitive little squire with about pound three thousand year of his own and great liking for intricate amusements. He was a pretty good mathematician and a tolerable fisherman. He knew an enormous amount about the Mohammedan conquest of Spain, and he is, I believe, writing a book upon that subject. I hope he will, for nearly all history wants to be rewritten. Anyhow, he, as I have just said, did copy a corner of one of the Dutch pictures in one of the galleries. It was a Dutch picture of the 17th century, and since the laws of this country are very complicated, and the sanctions attached to them very terrible, I will not give the name of the original artist, but I will call him Van Tromp. Van Tromps have always been recognized, and there was a moment, about fifty years after the artist's death, when they had a considerable vogue in the French court. Monsieur, who was quite ignorant of such things, bought a couple, and there is a whole row of them in the little pavilion at Louvciennes. Van Tromp has something about him at once positive and elusive. He is full of planes and values, and he interprets and renders, and the rest of it. Nay, he transfers. About thirty years ago Mr. Mayer, of Hildsheim and London, thought it his duty to impress upon the public how great Van Tromp was. This he did after taking thirteen Van Tromps in payment of a bad debt, and he succeeded. But the man I am writing about cared nothing for all this. He simply wanted to see how well he could imitate this corner of the picture. And he did it pretty well. He begrimed it, and he rubbed it, and then he tickled it up again with a knife, and then he smoked it, and then he put in some dirty whites which were vivid, and he played the fool with white of egg, and so forth, until he had the very tone and manner of the original. And as he had done it on an old bit of wood, it was exactly right, and he was very proud of the result. He got an old frame from near Long Acre, and stuck it in, and then he took the thing home. He had done several things of this kind, imitating miniatures, and even enamels. It amused him. When he got home, he sat looking at it with great pleasure for an hour or two. He left the little thing on the table of his study and went to bed. Here begins the story, and here, therefore, I must tell you what the subject of this corner of the picture was. The subject of this corner of the picture which he had copied was a woman in a brown jacket and a red petticoat with big feet showing underneath, sitting on a tub and cutting up some vegetables. She had her hair bunched up like an onion, a fashion which, as we all know, appealed to the Dutch in the seventeenth century, or at any rate to the plebeian Dutch. I must also tell you the name of this squire before I go any further. His name was Hammer, 
Paul Hammer. He was unmarried. He went to bed at eleven o'clock, and when he came down at eight o'clock he had his breakfast. He went into his study at nine o'clock and was very much annoyed to find that some burglars had come in during the night and had taken away a number of small objects which were not without value, and among them what he most regretted, his little pastiche of the corner of the Van Tromp. For some moments he stood filled with an acute anger and wishing that he knew who the burglars were and how to get at them. But the days passed, and though he asked everybody, and even gave some money to the police, he could not discover this. He put an advertisement into several newspapers, both London newspapers and local ones, saying that money would be given if the thing were restored, and pretty well hinting that no questions would be asked, but nothing came. Meanwhile the burglars, whose names were Charles and Lothair Femeral, foreigners but English-speaking, had found some of their ill-acquired goods saleable, others unsaleable. They wanted a pound for the little picture in the frame, and this they could not get, and it was a bother haggling about it. Lothair Femeral thought of a good plan. He stopped at an inn on the third day of their peregrinations, had a good dinner with his brother, told the innkeeper that he could not pay the bill, and offered to leave the old master in exchange. When people do this, it very often comes off, for the alternative is only the pleasure of seeing the man in goal, whereas a picture is always a picture, and there is a gambler's chance of its turning up trumps. So the man grumbled and took the little thing. He hung it up in the best room of the inn, where he gave his richer customers food. Thus it was that a young gentleman who had come down to ride in that neighborhood, though he did not know any of the rich people round about, saw it one day, and on seeing it exclaimed loudly in an unknown tongue. But he very rapidly repressed his emotion and simply told the innkeeper that he had taken a fancy to the daub and would give him thirty shillings for it. The innkeeper, who had read in the newspaper of how pictures of the utmost value are sold by fools for a few pence, said boldly that his price was twenty pounds whereupon the young gentleman went out gloomily, and the innkeeper thought that he must have made a mistake, and was for three or four hours depressed. But in the fourth hour again he was elated, for the young gentleman came back with twenty pounds, not even in notes, but in gold, paid it down, and took away the picture. Then again in the fifth hour was the innkeeper a little depressed, but not as much as before, for it struck him that the young gentleman must have been very eager to act in such a fashion, and that perhaps he could have got as much as twenty-one pounds by holding out and calling it guineas. The young gentleman telegraphed to his father, who lived in Wimbledon, but who did business in Bond Street, saying that he had got hold of a Van Tromp which looked like a study for the big Eversley Van Tromp in the gallery, and he wanted to know what his father would give for it. His father telegraphed back, inviting him to spend one whole night under the family roof. This the young man did, and though it wrung the old father's heart to have to do it, by the time he had seen the young gentleman's find, or travail as he called it, he had given his offspring a check for five hundred pounds, whereupon the young gentleman left and went back to do some more riding, an exercise of which he was passionately fond, and to which he had trained several quiet horses. 
The father wrote to a certain lord of his acquaintance, who was very fond of Van Tromps, and offered him this replica or study, in some ways finer than the original, but said it must be a matter for private negotiation. So he asked for an appointment, and a lord, who was a tall, red-faced man with a bluff manner, made an appointment for nine o'clock the next morning, which was rather early for Bond Street. But money talks, and they met. The lord was very well dressed, and when he talked he folded his hands, which had gloves on them, over the knob of his stick, and pressed his stick firmly upon the ground. It was a way he had. But it did not frighten the old gentleman who did business in Bond Street, and the long and short of it was that the lord did not get the picture until he had paid three thousand guineas, not pounds, mind you. For this sum the picture was to be sent round to the lord's house, and so it was and there it would have stayed but for a very curious accident. The Lord had put the greater part of his money into a company which was developing the resources of the South Shetland Islands, and by some miscalculation or other the expense of this experiment proved larger than the revenues obtainable from it. His policy, as I need hardly tell you, was to hang on, and so he did, because in the long run the property must pay, and so it would if they could have gone on shelling out for ever, but they could not. And so the whole affair was wound up, and the Lord lost a great deal of money. Under these circumstances he bethought him of the toiling millions who never see a good picture, and who have no more vivid appetite than the hunger for good pictures. He therefore lent his collection of Van Tromps, with the least possible delay, to a public gallery, and for many years they hung there, while the Lord lived in great anxiety, but with a sufficient income for his needs, in the delightful scenery of the Pennines, at some distance from a railway station, surrounded by his tenants. At last even these, the tenants I mean, were not sufficient, and a gentleman in the government who knew the value of Van Tromps proposed that these Van Tromps should be bought for the nation. But a lot of cranks made a frightful row, both in Parliament and out of it, so that the scheme would have fallen through had not one of the Van Tromps, to wit, that little copy of a corner, which was obviously a replica, or of a study for the best known of the Van Tromps, been proclaimed false, quite suddenly by a gentleman who doubted its authenticity. Whereupon everybody said that it was not genuine, except three people who really counted, and these included the gentleman who had recommended the purchase of the Van Tromps by the nation. So enormous was the row upon the matter, that the picture reached the very pinnacle of fame, and an Australian then travelling in England was determined to get that Van Tromp for himself, and did. This Australian was a very simple man, good and kind and childlike and frightfully rich. When he had got the Van Tromp he carried it about with him, and at the country houses where he stopped he used to pull it out and show it to people. It happened that among other country houses he stopped once at the Hunchback Squire's, whose name, as you will remember, was Mr. Hammer, and he showed him the Van Tromp one day after dinner. Now Mr. Hammer was by this time an old man, and he had ceased to care much about the things of this world. He had suffered greatly, and he had begun to think about religion. Also he had made a good deal of money in Egyptians, for all this was before the slump. 
and he was pretty well ashamed of his pastiches. So one way or another the seeing of that picture did not have the effect upon him which you might have expected. For you, the reader, have read this story in five minutes, if you have had the patience to get so far. But he, Mr. Hammer, had been changing, and changing for years, and I tell you he did not care a dump what happened to the wretched thing. Only when the Australian, who was good and simple, and kind and hearty, showed him the picture, and asked him proudly to guess what he had given for it, then Mr. Hammer looked at him, with a look in his eyes full of that not mortal sadness which accompanies irremediable despair. I do not know, he answered gently, and with a sob in his voice. I paid for that picture, said the Australian, in the accent and language of his native clime, no less than a sum of seventy-five hundred pounds, and I'd pay it again to-morrow. Saying this, the Australian hit the table with the palm of his hand in a manner so manly that an aged retainer who was putting coals upon the fire allowed the coal scuttle to drop. But Mr. Hammer, ruminating in his mind all the accidents and changes and adventures of human life, its complexity, its unfilled desires, its fading, but not quite perishable ideals, well knowing how men are made happy and how unhappy, ventured on no reply. Two great tears gathered in his eyes, and he would have shed them, perhaps to be profusely followed by more. He was nearly breaking down, when he looked up and saw on the wall opposite him seven pastiches which he had made in the years gone by. There was a Titian, and a George Morland, and a Chardin, two cows after Cooper, and an impressionist picture after some Frenchman whose name he had forgotten. "'You like pictures?' he said to the Australian, the tears still standing in his eyes. "'I do,' said the Australian with conviction. "'Will you let me give you these?' said Mr. Hammer. The Australian protested that such things could not be allowed, but he was a simple man, and at last he consented, for he was immensely pleased.' It is an ungracious thing to make conditions, said Mr. Hammer, and I won't make any, only I should be pleased if, in your island home, I don't live on an island, said the Australian. Mr. Hammer remembered the map of Australia with the water all round it, but he was too polite to argue. No, of course not, he said, you live on the mainland. I forgot. But anyhow, I should be so pleased if you would promise me to hang them all together, these pictures, with your Van Tromp all in a line, I really should be so pleased. Why, certainly, said the Australian, a little bewildered, I will do so, Mr. Hammer, if it can give you any pleasure. The fact is, said Mr. Hammer, in a breaking voice, I had that picture once, and I intended it to hang side by side with these. It was in vain that the Australian, on hearing this, poured out self-reproaches offered with an expansion of soul to restore it, and then more prudently attempted a negotiation. Mr. Hammer resolutely shook his head. I am an old man, he said, and I have no heirs. It is not for me to take, but to give. And if you will do what an old man begs of you, and accept what I offer, if you will do more, and of your courtesy keep all these things together which were once familiar to me, it will be enough reward. The next day, therefore, the Australian sailed off to his distant continental home, 
carrying with him not only the Chardin, the Titian, the Cooper, the Impressionist picture, and the rest, but also the Van Tromp. And three months after, they all hung in a row in the great new copper room at Waramaga. What happened to them later on, and how they were sold altogether as the Waramaga collection, I will tell you when I have the time, and you have the patience. Farewell. The end of chapter 4